everyone, and welcome to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is episode 50. While 50 episodes isn't a huge milestone, I mean, there's lots of podcasts that have been out and put out many more episodes than this one, I do consider it a little something worth marking. Uh, So to that end, I thought it might be fun to celebrate by doing something kind of special. So this episode, we're going to look at a story that I've wanted to do for quite a while, actually, but didn't quite know how to work it in. This episode, we're going to go back and look at Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster's first story with a character going by the name of Superman, because we're going to go and look at Siegel and Shuster's The Reign of the Superman from 1933. But that's not all. Because to add a little something extra to the mix, I decided to invite on a special guest for this episode. He is the only guy I know of with the, well, I don't know if it's determination or insanity or a little bit of both, but he's the only other podcaster I'm aware of who podcasts regularly about the golden age of the Man of Steel. So it is my great pleasure to introduce this episode's special guest co-host, Mr. John Wilson. Hello, hello, everyone. John is host of Golden Age Superman, a show also looking at uh, Superman's Golden Age stories. By sheer coincidence, John and I developed and started our shows pretty much simultaneously, with no idea what the other was planning until afterwards. We had talked quite a while ago about trying to team up for something, but because we both cover the same material but at different rates, uh, John's show is monthly, well, it's going monthly, where here we look at each story individually. It just wasn't that easy to find something to team up on. Uh, So, John, for those who aren't familiar with your Superman show or your other podcasting endeavors, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into comics? Okay. Well, um, I I grew up as a Marvel kid. Um, I was a Spider-Man fan from way back. There's there's not – a memory in my head of not being a Spider-Man fan. Well, whenever I was young, I had the chicken pox and I was laid up in bed for a while with that. And I read through the three, they were printed in the late seventies. They were these three pocketbook sized paperbacks that reprinted the first 20 issues of amazing Spider-Man and not in hodgepodge with panels rearranged and enlarged stuff, but actually the comic pages shrunk down to pocketbook sized pages. Cool. Um, so I read those first 20 issues of Spider-Man probably at least a dozen or two dozen times. And then I actually started buying Spider-Man comics in late 1990. Uh, I got a lot of different Marvel titles, uh, started getting Batman, um, got into Batman largely because of the Tim Burton film. And we started buying the actual comics right around the time that Tim Drake was about to become Robin. I never really got into DC though as a kid. I read, I was intrigued by Superman. I read the Death of Superman trade. I had read a couple other uh, DC stories that involved Superman, like the Armageddon 2001 bits, but um, but I never really latched onto the character until about, I guess it's nearly four years ago now, when the Iron Man movie came out and got that kind of led to a resurgence of my comic interest that had pretty much died away ever since 1993. And uh, it started with Marvel stuff, and I found out, you know, how easy back issues are to get with the various um, uh, books and DVDs that have been published. And I found um, the Superman Chronicles on the bookshelves in a comic book store, picked up uh, the first volume and read through it and was gobsmacked by what I read there. Uh, It was just a completely different version of the character than I ever read. And it was in... Let's see, what are we in now? We're in 2011 now. So it was in early 2009 that I decided I wanted to read some modern-day Superman. So I thought that post-crisis would be a good place to start. And I got a hold of some books, started reading, and then after having read just maybe about a year of comics, I found out that From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast was (laughs) being published by Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor. And I... I think I got in on their second episode. Uh, I think it was new whenever I pulled them down. And so they must have been getting the idea to 
to read those books and make that podcast right around the time that I was starting to read the comic books. So it was sort of a little bit of a um, synergy, not synergy, but you know, serendipity. Serendipity. That's the word. It's S word uh, going on there. So yeah, um, continued reading Golden Age stuff. Did a lot of Golden Age Green Lantern, a lot of Golden Age Superman, uh, Justice Society of America. I have the entire All Star archives. Read all of that, um, and just really took a shine to the Golden Age. And it was in summer of 2010 when um, Michael Bailey and I were talking about stuff, you know, just random things. And he said he wanted to have me on to an episode of his show, Views from the Long Box, to talk about Golden Age Superman. And I was like, huh, that'd be really cool. But, you know, it's been a really long time since I've read those really early issues. By that time, I was in 1954, I think, in my, in my Superman read-through project. And um, so I went back and started rereading um, the first, you know, few issues of Action Comics and realized how much I love those early years of Superman. And so I started, the idea started germinating in my head. And over the next six months, the idea changed a lot. It, at one point I was considering doing like a showcase kind of show where I would just start at Action Comics 1 and do a podcast on every single comic book that I cared about. Hmm. And just touch all of the Marvel heroes and, and the DC heroes that I cared about each episode you know do it do uh do an issue episode and just go through that way um decided that was too varied and broad a scope so i narrowed it back down to my original idea of golden age superman and right around the time that i was taking notes and getting ready to do a first episode i heard out this other strange person that i'd never heard of whose whose name bore a stark resemblance to several other people that i knew uh, like michael bailey and um who's the other michael that we know michael kaiser you know um just was going to do another golden age Superman. So I talked to you on Facebook and via emails and stuff. And we, uh, we decided that the internet was big enough for two golden age Superman podcasts. So I started mine up and you started yours. And, and really I like that we have the two different shows one, because (laughs) if I, if this doesn't come off the wrong way, I think both of our desires for order are very strong and are not the same. <laughs> okay. So you you have the way that your show is organized, and I'm pretty sure that you really like the way your show is organized, and it's not at all the way that I want my show to be organized. Right. So they're different. They're both good, but I don't think we would have seen – I think there would have been some creative conflicts if we had tried to mel- meld one idea with the other. So, and you have much more focus on the history and the creator history and everything stuff that I just didn't have in my head when I started doing my show. A lot of it I've read about since, um, and I kind of wish that I had known more about it when I was starting my show up. Um, Les Daniels is a is a is a um, a vault of information that I've read from. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, um, we have our two shows. Mine started out weekly, but life has gotten in the way, and episodes have gotten more involved. So I'm doing a month of information every episode. And, um, and so I've slowed down a bit and how much, how often I get episodes out, but I still get one out at least once a month. And, um, I think even at that rate, I'm still staying ahead of you (laughs) in the coverage. Well, there's just so much to cover right now because you've got the Sunday strips, the daily strips, the radio show, and, uh, two, well, not two monthly comics, but, uh, a monthly comic and then a uh, quarterly comic. So, yeah, oh, and where I am, he's bi-monthly. He's every two months now. So right, and I'm I'm getting there too on this show. But I like too that you know our two shows we're coming at them from completely different perspectives because even though you and I are about the same age, I think I'm a couple years older than you are, but um, we come from very different backgrounds. I think, mm-hmm. and that just lends different perspectives to the stories. So that's that's one of the things I like about having the two shows even though I'm doing one of them, you know, is we, we come at them from different angles, but right. Would you say that the golden age is your favorite era of Superman or, um, probably I, uh, the more I read of post crisis Superman, the more I realize just how much awesomeness was done Mm -hmm. by, uh, that team of creators, John Byrne, Jerry Ordway, uh, Dan Jurgens and all the different people who were in that team um, over the late 80s and early 90s. So there's a lot that is there that I really, really like. So if it's if the Golden Age is not my favorite, it's only because it's tied or slightly behind the post-crisis. But but those two are in a constant straight state of war. 
um, with with which is which is you know more dear to my heart. Uh, I, curiously enough, though, speaking of just the golden age, Superman is not my favorite character to read. Oh, yeah. um, I actually I, I get a really big charge out of golden age flash comics. I have never those, read a lot of those. Those are funny. They are fun. They are fast paced. And I just giggle <laughs> a lot of times when I'm reading them. I, I haven't read a whole lot. I've only probably read like 30 issues of Flash comics and then the first few issues of all Flash Quarterly that went along with it. But it's good stuff. It really is good stuff. Um, overall, Superman is definitely my favorite character. But if we're just looking at the Golden Age, Flash comics and all Flash Quarterly are my favorite books. As you know, whenever I have guests on, I like to ask them this question. So what would you say is your favorite Superman story, taking all the eras into account? That one Ray fought the gangster and killed a bunch of guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, wow. My favorite Superman story. Uh, I have a hard time with these. You're going to have to cut, edit out some some thinking space here. Um it's a tough question. I yeah, I I have thought about it myself and I, I don't think I've come up with a good answer to it myself. So You know what one of them is, one of the one of the um non golden age stories that really stands out in my mind is the Armageddon two thousand one Superman annual number three, where uh you take Superman's uh history into the future, he and Lois get married, Lois gets pregnant and she's killed by a superpowered baby kick. Hmm. And um, maybe not even necessarily what happens in the rest of that story with him going kind of dictatorial and, you know, taking over the world and stuff and putting a clamp down on the, on the, um, uh, the, the, the nuclear disarmament and everything and Batman having to take him down with a Dark Knight Return style suit and everything. But really it's more the progression of how we get from here to that future and the story that is told there, um, that has always stuck out in my mind ever since I first read it in 1991 when it was new. Uh, that was that's one of my most memorable Superman stories. Well, it's a good story. I I didn't read it when it was new. I read it afterwards, like a lot of the the uh, late 80s and early 90s Superman. But but I I do agree that it's a very good story. are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. The dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. Just to give a little bit of background on the story, in 1932, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster collaborated to create a fanzine called Science Fiction, The Advanced Guard of Future Civilization. In the end, they only produced five issues, but the third issue, which was dated January 1933, contained a prose story written by Jerry Siegel with illustrations by Joe Shuster, both working under the pen name of Herbert S. Fine. And the story was called The Reign of the Superman, hyphenated when it was split over two pages in the title, but not hyphenated in the story. If you're interested in a bit more about the fanzine itself and Siegel and Schuster's earliest collaborations, uh, I recommend you go back and listen to episodes 10 and 15 of the show, where I did my spotlights on Siegel and Schuster. But right now, we're just going to get right into the story itself. 
John and I split the story up for the synopsis, and John's got the first half of the story, so I'm going to turn it over to him. Okay, The Reign of the Superman opens with a two-page illustration surrounding the opening paragraphs of story. Uh, As Michael said, the title logo has Superman hyphenated like Spider-Man 30 years later. Uh, There is a cityscape with towering futuristic skyscrapers and a trestle bridge and milling crowds of people. Spotlights beam up into the night to illuminate the grimacing head and menacing clawed hands of a bald white man because Siegel and Schuster really like bald white bad guys. Uh, We can only assume that this is the Superman of the title as we get into the story. Uh, It is listed on the page here as being by Herbert S. Fine, that pseudonym that he mentioned. Another thrilling story by the writer of Snaring the Master. Because everyone remembers Snaring the Master. Right. (laughs) We open on Professor Ernest Smalley, a chemist walking contemptuously past a bread line. He hates the people in the line because he is rich and they are poor, but he needs one of them. At first searching for a particular type, but then just choosing one man at random, Smalley offers his selected man a hot meal and new clothes. The man, whose name is Bill Dunn, jumps at the opportunity and accompanies Smalley in his car, unaware that Smalley plans to subject him to some dangerous experimentation involving a new element he has discovered in a meteor fragment. They arrive at Smalley's house, and Dunn goes off to get cleaned up. Wearing a new suit and clean-shaven, Dunn looks like a completely different man. Smalley is rather thrilled at how easily this whole process is going, and hurries off to get Dunn some food. When he returns, Dunn gulps down everything set before him, including the coffee in which Smalley had placed the small grains from the meteor. After eating, Dunn doesn't feel so well, and begins to pick up on the not-so-subtly-concealed air of triumph about the professor. So when Professor Smalley goes off for the butler to prepare Dunn's room, Dunn decides it's time to go, and he escapes through a window. Dunn is not doing well, however. He flees the professor's residence, staggering, babbling, and finally colliding full force into a tree in a nearby public park. Laying there, all these snippets of voices begin to fill his brain— He can make no sense of the cacophony, but is able to shut it off by deciding that he doesn't want to hear it anymore. Next, wondering what the professor might be thinking about his escape, he immediately begins to hear Professor Smalley's voice in his head, berating himself for allowing Dunn to escape. Dunn suddenly realizes that the professor has infected him with some chemical that allows him to read thoughts. He wonders if his other senses might have been affected. Sound is a yes. Touch, taste, and scent are no. But to test his sight, he looks into the night sky and finds the tiny red light of Mars. Gazing upon it and concentrating, he is able to zoom in and witness a hunting scene between two Martian beings. Reeling from the shock and strain, Dunn passes out right there on the floor of the park. The man's evolution seems to continue while he is unconscious, for when he wakes, his personality has undergone a rather dramatic shift, realizing out of seeming nowhere that he can not only read thoughts but influence them as well. He decides money should be a very easy thing to procure now. Also, his mind has absorbed all the knowledge of the universe while he slept. Thus mentally empowered, he decides to go to the library. At the library, he reads a book written in German by Albert Einstein and laughs at the trash written inside. A man sits down next to him, and after being stared at by the dirtily clothed Superman, this new visitor man decides to humble him by asking him if he knows the Fitzgerald contraction. Before he can ask the question, though, the Superman reads his thoughts and gives the answer before leaving the library. The story then continues as Dunn, with his psychic abilities confirmed, sets out to get money in order to further his quest for world domination. He starts out small by suckering a random stranger out of $15 and making a fool out of him in the process. He then moves on to slightly bigger fish by convincing a shop owner to give him $100 by convincing him he'd turn him over to the feds for selling alcohol. 
$115 richer, Dunn leaves the store and tries to think about how he can get even more money. Furrowing his brow, he concentrates, trying to increase his power, and soon he sees a vision of a man sitting on a park bench and reading a newspaper. Studying further, he realizes what he's actually seeing is a vision 24 hours in the future. Reading the headlines, he sees news of stock market changes and winners at the horse track before the vision suddenly ends. But Dunn is satisfied. He can only see a few hours into the future, but that was enough for him. After all, the Superman mused, time is simply duration, and duration is an illusion of the mind. Some indeterminate time later, we cut to the lab of Professor Smalley, where he reads a newspaper article about how Dunn has recently come into a tremendous string of good luck in gambling arenas, and amassed quite a fortune in doing so. Another article within the paper talks about how Clyde Cornell, one of the town's wealthiest residents, had reported to the police that while sitting in his study, he suddenly caught himself writing out a $40,000 check to Dunn. The incident has left police puzzled, especially considering Cornell had never heard of Dunn. Realizing what Dunn is doing with his powers, Smalley leaps out of his chair and begins writing a letter to the newspaper detailing how he had taken Dunn from the breadline, experimented on him, and what the chemical had done. And he concluded, unless this creature is snared and shot dead like a beast, he will grow. His powers will strengthen, increase, until he holds the fate of the world in the palm of his hand. After mailing the letter, Smalley returns to his lab. Having grown envious of Dunn's power, he sets about recreating the chemical to use on himself. He finishes up and is about to ingest the concoction when the doorbell rings and Smalley is compelled to answer it. The visitor is Dunn. As the two walk towards the lab, Dunn relates to Smalley everything that he's done, not fearing any repercussions as he plans to kill Smalley afterward. Dunn then pulls from Smalley's mind that Smalley is planning on drinking the chemical and then killing him, and soon the two are locked in a fight. They struggle throughout the lab, and Smalley eventually breaks free from Dunn and leaps at the flask. At this point, we cut to the gathering of the International Conciliatory Council, leaders from throughout the world gathered for the largest peace conference of all time. All the nations are smiling and friendly for the first time in history. One of the officials rises to speak, but suddenly his demeanor changes and he bitterly lashes out at the other countries. The country's official responds in kind, and soon the entire gathering is tearing itself apart. At the newspaper offices, having received Smalley's letter, the editor assigns reporter Forrest Ackerman to go interview the professor. Arriving at Smalley's house, he gets no answer when he knocks on the door, so Ackerman just goes on in to find the place wrecked. Furniture overturned, glass shattered, and a large spot of dried blood on the floor. Ackerman runs from the home and gets in his car and drives away, but soon finds himself inexplicably compelled to go to a particular building. Entering the building, he sees Dunn, who orders him to sit down. When Ackerman does, he is automatically bound to the chair and realizes what, that Dunn has used his abilities to compel him to come to the building. Dunn calmly explains how he killed Smalley and that he's about to send the armies of the world against one another. At this point, Ackerman snaps and begins screaming at Dunn but Dunn simply clenches his fist and begins to send out his telepathic message. But he soon stops. Dunn's hate turns to dread as he gets another vision of the future. A glimpse of himself, the next day, no longer the Superman, but again a powerless vagrant. Dunn realizes the chemical's effects are wearing off and his powers will be gone within the hour. And with the meteor gone, there is no way to replenish them. Realizing he has misused his powers and that his name will forever be cursed, Dunn adjusts the mechanism on the chair holding Ackerman in place and telling him he will be released in 15 minutes. And I, he grinned wryly, I will be back in the breadline. The end. So it's a fun little story. It is. It's a very fun story. Uh, why don't you go ahead with your notes first? Okay. Um, I'm not sure that I have a whole lot of specific notes, um, but I, I do have some written down. Um Okay, when the story opens, you you see the headline, "The Reign of the Superman," and and you get the idea of the scientist. And, and when you open this first scene, you see a mean scientist, mm-hmm. and that's a fake out. 
and I like that. I like that you we we meet Smalley. We think we're following the character of the story, and then turns out, oh no, we're not. Um, because he, he is a like a like a diabolical professor. Yes. Um, and I, I liked that. Uh, William Dunn. He's never physically described really throughout the story. The illustrations have him as a bald white guy. Um, but actually, as I'm reading the story, I picture him as having hair. Um, I don't know why, but I just do. Um, favorite part of his powers were was whenever he was looking up in the night sky and he sees the scene on Mars. That was a very... It's not just... It's, yeah, it's not just a, a sentence. Right. It's like, you get like five paragraphs of this scene. Um... The the one really big problem I have with the story is just how quickly they go from normal dude to diabolical tyrant. Yeah, but yeah, I'll agree with that. I mean, I realize they have a page count, and so then again, it's their own fanzine. They can <laughs> right. They can do what they want to with their own story, right? Um, but maybe you know maybe that wasn't necessarily the case because they do have other stories that are contracted to be in this fanzine. They can only have so many pages. So maybe they do only have a certain amount of space to work with and they do pretty well with the space that they have. I actually really dug this story. I, I had never read it before. Uh, it was just one of those things I knew about ha- having happened back there. I never read gladiator either. And I really, really need to, yeah, uh, same I feel like a, I'm not a Superman fan if I haven't read, you know, not a, not a golden age history of Superman fan if I haven't read Gladiator. So I need to get on that. Um, the uh, the Fitzgerald contraction, I, I looked that up because I was not familiar with it. I don't know if you have ever come across that concept before. I know you're in uh, you're in you've done engineering, right? You're in radio or newspaper. You're in newspapers. Yeah, I'm in newspaper. Yeah, I don't do any engineering. Um, I had never heard of it either, but I I googled it and it is a real a real uh, what's the word I'm so looking it, for? If thing. you and I have ever decided to start traveling at a significant fraction of the speed of light, <laughs> you know, tomorrow, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> um, any objects that we passed, you know, parallel objects that we passed, um, would the, the length of those objects would appear to be less than it actually was. There is. There is a contraction, a distortion effect in the in the observed reality around you as you're traveling at close to the speed of light. Um, you know, like like five percent is a pretty significant fraction because we can't even go anywhere near one percent. Um, so, yeah, it's it's the sort of sort of concept that never happens in everyday life, and so it's always ignored um, for normal purposes. But it does factor in. Yeah, it's a special relatively relativity concept. Um, I wrote down here prohibition for the win, and now I'm trying to remember the exact exact scene where that came up. Oh yeah, when he's in the bar. When he, yeah. Well, it's not. I thought it was like a drugstore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes okay. to arrest the guy. He like yeah. he sort of like smooth talks him into giving him some out, some liquor, and then he's like, ha, 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 I got you. yeah. That was pretty good. Sign of the times because it's 1933 and definitely yeah. Okay, time is simply duration, and duration is an illusion of the mind. <laughs> okay, I, I, I get what he's like saying because we all perceive the passage of time subjectively. Right, it, it can fly by or it can drag, you know. But but time is an objective constant. That's why we have clocks and watches. I mean, it is it is a thing that is there. <laughs> right. So. It's a bit of nonsense what he's what he's saying there in in I'm, relation to the, the the situation he's in. It's it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. No, no, it's not. I mean, I'd rather he go back to Einstein and start talking about special relativity in order to observe the future. But um, I don't really know what the what the mathematical bases for time travel are. So I just know that the flux capacitor is what makes time travel possible. One point twenty one gigawatts. Yeah. What the hell is a gigawatt? Okay. Um, after the fight between the Superman and Smalley, they they take the attention off Superman, and they leave you in suspense as far as who might have won that battle. 
Yeah. Is, is done going to continue to be, you know, all powerful or has Smalley won or have, have they, you know, taken each other out like, like Superman and Doomsday did. Um, so you, you get some scenes where the attention is off him and the rest of the world is reacting to him. But there are obviously is still a Superman active and everything because he's influencing these nations to, to do things and stuff. Um, and the denouement of him seeing his future as being just a regular Joe again. And he realizes that he could have done things. He could have played the game very differently. On the one hand, it's sweet. On the other hand, it's also kind of, I don't know. He didn't wake up in that park thinking happy thoughts. You know, it's not like he had a reason to go dastardly. He wasn't, you know, abused by somebody and spurned by a loved one. He just woke up thinking, you know, what are we going to do tonight, Pinky? Is there anything we do every night? Try to take over the world, you know? (laughs) So it's one of those things where he he probably maybe honestly did think that, oh, I should have done things differently. Oh, man, I'm such a dumbo. But I don't think for the for a minute that he would have for whatever reason. And it is completely unexplained. There is no explanation of why he went from a normal guy to, you know, world conqueror in the space of one night's sleep. Yeah. Um, I had a note that the ending kind of came off as hokey a little bit. It is It is just a bit. It is just a bit. I, I, I can see what he's going for, but it is right. not the best executed. Um, other than that, I just had some thoughts about how this – you know, ties into the later mythological developments, but we can talk about that later if you want to. Yeah, let's save that for later. Um, as far as my notes go, I, I, want, I had a couple little comments about the art. Um, it's kind of hard to judge Schuster's art here because it's only three spot illustrations opposed to the se- sequential pages that he did in the comics. But I kind of like his art here. It's a little bit of a different style than in the comics, but that could just be because it's a. Uh, a different medium or because they're bigger than the normal comic panel. But I really love this title, title splash. John described it well in his synopsis. You just have this big evil face looming over the city, which is sort of drawn in this futuristic art deco style, but still rather contemporary. And the, uh, the typography for the story is, is a little bit stylized. It just all really looks great. Um, but as for the story itself, Right from the get-go, the story establishes that it's set in then-modern day. Being 1933 or or 1932 when he likely wrote it, this was smack in the middle of the Great Depression, and bread lines, or soup kitchens, I think is a more common name for them, were no doubt plentiful, uh, even in Cleveland, where, you know, Siegel and Schuster were from. I think soup kitchen is the place, and the bread line is the line of people waiting to get food. Okay, well, that makes sense. And John touched on it too. The way Smalley is treated here in the beginning and really throughout the story, you almost kind of wonder who the villain is. I mean, yes, Dunn did and and tried to do horrible things with his power, but at the same time, it's difficult to feel sympathetic towards Smalley because he is in no way innocent. I mean, he abducts this guy and uh, uses him as a human guinea pig without his consent, and then later in the story, he has every intention of making himself into a Superman and then killing Dunn. So they're they're both villainous, but in different ways. Right. Have you ever read Alan Moore's run on Supreme? No, I haven't. It's one of those things, that, especially since hearing uh, Grant Morrison talk about it in Super Gods, I really want to read, but I haven't read it yet. Uh, Supreme was a character that was created by Rob, Leif- Rob Liefeld in the early 90s. Youngblood number three was his first appearance, so this was very much at the beginning of, of Image Comics. When Alan Moore took over Supreme's book, he reworked the character's origin, and Supreme's powers came from exposure to a meteorite. It's probably completely coincidence, but I thought that was interesting, an interesting uh, connection, given that Alan Moore's Supreme is a big tribute to Superman. Right. The uh, The part of the story where... Dunn is adjust, adjusting and discovering his new powers. That's my hands down my favorite part of the story. It's just very colorfully written, and you know, like we talked about the scene where he sees out into space. I just love that whole thing. You get these descriptions of these aliens. Um, 
and just all the little snippets of voices that he hears. I mean, yeah. Siegel writes two pretty extended paragraphs of just random stuff. Right. And, you know, well, anybody can think of random stuff. Well, yeah, but, you know, it feels natural. It feels like this really could be things that people are saying or thinking all around him in completely, you know, unconnected and unrelated conversations. Right. And that, that stuff's not as easy to write as you think it is either. I mean, right, it really isn't. <laughs> to, to make them feel authentic and feel completely random, it, it can be a hard thing to balance. But the stuff about the expanding universe and, and the, the Einstein connection and stuff, that was all pretty new science around 1933. I believe that stuff was first coming up and, and being discovered in – 1929 or, or maybe the very very early 30s so even though it's just a, a name check here it's you know he's pulling stuff that's still very much topical at the time you ever get the feeling that Siegel and Sh- at least Siegel and maybe Schuster too didn't have a whole lot of um, love for scientists well they're rarely painted in a pleasant light in their stories and this guy who suddenly knows everything about the universe mocks and ridicules Albert Einstein's work. I had never thought of that, but now that you bring it up, that is a very good point. Uh, I, mean, I mean, we're going to talk about it here in a minute, but Ultra and Luthor, they're super scientists. That's what they do. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just as I was thinking about it, I was like – and maybe that comes from his uh, – his, I honestly have no idea how much his Judaism was a part of his life um, beyond his blood. But it, it may it may be that there's a bit of a you know cultural upbringing influencing that. I have read that he was not very religious at all. Okay, I believe one of his cousins, some relative, said that he wasn't very. Uh, he was Jewish, but not. I can't think. Yeah, of he, not he's Jewish by blood, but not necessarily by faith. Right. Yeah. And he, he, I mean, he definitely has some humanism to him. He he sees the good in humanity, and Superman's out there saving people and trying to make them better and everything. But but um, he obviously doesn't have a whole lot of. To me, it seems like he doesn't have a whole lot of truck for for uh, science and what it's doing to change the world. Yeah, I'm not sure why Dunn went back to Smalley's lab. It seemed kind of unnecessary to me, unless he had read Smalley's mind before he came to the lab and knew that Smalley was working on more of the chemical and was going there to stop him. The whole time that Smalley was writing that letter, which um, he was going to send off to the to the newspapers or wherever he's, he sent it to, I, the whole time he was writing that, I was expecting to hear, to, to have Dunn come in and stop oh. him or to have to like mentally influence him to address it to, you know, the Boy Scouts of America or something, <laughs> you know, so, right. so, so that to, to derail this attempt. Um, so whenever he showed up shortly after that, it didn't really come as a surprise to me. But it, there's nothing stated in the story as far as why he actually came back. I would assume it was just to to put a stop to Smalley. You had brought it up about um, they kind of leave you hanging when they're fighting and then they jump to the council. And I didn't mind that, but it threw me that that break actually jumps us forward in time a while, at least a day or two. Because there's nothing in the story that indicates that we are, you know, a couple days ahead until you get over, uh, until really Ackerman arrives at the house and he sees the dried blood. Well, no, he doesn't. Yeah, he gets to the house, yeah, and sees the dried blood on the floor. So that was kind of a, just a leap. But the uh, the International Conciliatory Council is obviously a parallel to the League of Nations. It, I, I, it, um. It's a really funny name because conciliatory is the adjective form of council. So you have the um, the international council that is all you know about being a council. <laughs> it, it's 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 a redundant name from the the, the uh, redundancy department of redundancy yes. department. So yes, um, but yeah, it, it actually. I did. I did have to take some time to adjust too, because the way this is written, there really aren't any line breaks. The way they change scene right. is the next paragraph has the first three words capitalized, but yeah. it does that whether it's you know going from inside Smalley's house to outside Smalley's house, 
or if it's jumping in forward in time, however many you know days or weeks it is to the council scene. Yeah, um, and this that switch is really more of an act break than a scene break. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a scene break too, but it's it's really an act break. But I, I was kind of while we're on the topic of the international council council, I was curious why Seal didn't just use the League of Nations, other than the fact that the U.S. wasn't part of the League of Nations. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't matter ultimately. It didn't really affect the story any, but it was just why make up a fake council when you've got a when you've got a real one, right? Yeah, that is kind of interesting. I I can't even like BS my way from an explanation on that, <laughs> which um, I like to do. People ask me questions, and I totally extrapolate possibilities based on you know what little information I have. Right. So, but this Warren Mansfield and the other official's name, this um, Anthony Ferrati, they're fictional too, as far as I could tell with quick Google searches. But this Forrest Ackerman who is the reporter, is obviously a reference to the real Forrest Ackerman, a well-known writer and science fiction fan uh, who was an acquaintance also of Siegel and Schuster. I was looking at the council, and yeah, Balvania, that's, that's not a real country, and right. uh, Italy, it's not a real country. <laughs> you almost, like, not knowing that this is only eight pages, if I didn't realize I was on the very next to the last page, you know, from the conciliatory council of conciliatoriness um, and the Forrest Ackerman scene, this could start a whole a chapter of like you know a much longer story. This could like go on all about the Superman's rise to power and domination and everything, and you could actually go from that scene and build something even larger and more epic. Yes, they just have to. To kind of close it off, and sometimes I feel that with the Superman stories, like you're on page eleven or twelve, and it could you could see how this could just keep on going, but oh no, there's only one page left, so yeah. it, it's done. You're gonna see the the final boss who's behind it all. He's gonna get three panels to fight Superman and die, and then you know they're all back at the planet talking about things for one panel at the end. That's one reason I think I've been enjoying the the daily strips a little more than I have the comic stories because. I think Siegel has more room to make a story longer if he needs it or shorter. And it, the uh, the one I covered last episode, he kind of wrapped things up real quick. You haven't actually heard last episode yet, but uh, he, he wrapped it up too quick, and I don't know why that was. But generally speaking, it, it just feels like he has more room to, to make things fit comfortably rather than that 12-page limit that he has in the comics or 13 pages. Which story was that you did last episode? It was the 13th storyline from the dailies. It was the one where um, the the trouble in the tenement story, mm. with where the guy's on the roof of the building and he's uh, and then Superman gets involved and then it's a heavy Clark Kent story all the way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the girl plays such a hard a large factor in the first part of the story, then completely disappears and is only reintroduced in order to be kidnapped and used as a hostage for like three days, right. and that's it. Yeah, yeah, I remember that story. <laughs> First, uh, first Casey's appearance too. Yes, yeah, I made note of that in my recording. Yep. But that's all I had as far as specific notes. Uh, as different as this is from the the action comics Superman, you can see Siegel playing with somewhat of a similar theme, just kind of a, a mirror of it. You know, Dunn's an ordinary guy with nothing going for him who gets these unheard of abilities and then goes drunk with power. Where Superman is basically the flip side of that as he's a guy born with unlimited power but masquerading as that ordinary schlub but it's still that same kind of wish fulfillment that you can see Siegel toying with even if it's a completely different take on it I know there was a moment when Siegel decided to stop developing his super powered character as a villain and start doing it as a hero I don't know if there's a story surrounding that or if it's just one of those things we know he did at some point. But yeah, there there was there was this and were there other um attempts at sale, selling stories that involved superpowered villains? Cuz I feel like this was not just an isolated case. There were basically three Superman characters. There was this one and then there was one they tried to sell to a uh, publisher in Chicago as a uh not as a comic book, but something along those lines. 
that's the one that got destroyed in the fire except for right. the cover, right? Right. And that was uh, – Siegel and Schuster later described that one as more like Slam Bradley, but he was a, a good guy. And then there was the one we have today that, that was okay. introduced in Action Comics number one. So this was the only one that was a villain. I just, for some reason, I have the impression in my mind that he played with the the superpowered villain for a while before he switched to hero. But that could just be me. Um, I like to make stuff up sometimes. But he did. I mean, he took the superpowers and he gave them to Superman after you know playing with them with Doctor Cole for a while. Right. Um, but then he took the scientist element and spun that off into its own thing. And so you have Superman's first major recurring villain is Ultra, the Ultra Humanite who is a super scientist. Right. And then once he goes away, we introduce the war profiteer, Luthor, but in his very second story, Superman describes him as a scientist bent on world domination. Right. And it's not very long before he loses his hair and resembles Ultra in all, but, you know, of course, Ultra had swapped being a female before he went away. But, um, but Luthor pretty much looks just like Ultra did um, pretty early on. Except and for being so I, in the wheelchair, yeah. Except for being in the wheelchair, yeah. <laughs> with his bat, with his henchman having to carry him across the field. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like a freaking bride being carried across the threshold. It's so funny. Um, so yeah, this idea of getting superpowers from meteor fragment would later be um, reincarnated in the Marvel Comics villain who started out as a Spider-Man villain. Um, he's gone under various names. He started out being called the Looter, and then he was called the Meteor Man or something like that. But basically, he found a meteor with this gas inside that he could breathe and get superpowers. And then he starts worrying that he's going to lose his superpowers someday. So he needs to get more meteors. And so this this meteor with its ultra rare meteor with its ultra rare gas, he's able to keep finding more supply. Um, as as you know, the stories of Spider Man have gone on over the years. Yeah. But as I was reading this, it reminded me of that, and I'm wondering now if Lee wasn't or Ditko, one of the two, wasn't familiar with this story and decided to, you know, because the the looter's a bumbler. He he's crazy. Um, he's he's kooky. He's personal, like mentally off balance. Not in a I want to kill you kind of way, but in a I can't quite manage to keep my life together kind of way. Um, and so it sort of takes this idea and turns it on its head just a little bit. Hmm. Um, what issue was he introduced in? It's okay. in the thirties. It's in the Spider-Man thirties. I, ha- I have to look okay. and see exactly which one it is. Okay. Um, but it, it was right before Ditko left. Um, because it was he does the big master planner storyline, which is so you know widely hailed, and then he does a bunch of stories that really just aren't really very good. <laughs> before he finally left the book, Amazing Spider-Man thirty six was the first just, appearance. Had he just given up at that point? I don't know exactly, but it's possible. <laughs> it's it's very possible that he had the the lat the the one really good story he did before he left was issue thirty seven which um, is where you get to know uh, Norman Osborn really for the first time before you find out two issues later that he's the Green Goblin. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's pretty much given away in that issue, but it's not actually given away until Ditko's gone and Ramita comes and reveals it. But anyways, that's my Spider-Man history coming in there. But I really like this. The first time I read it, I was pretty captivated by it. I mean, it's not high literature by any means, but I think it's really good, especially uh, given that it was 1932 or 33, and uh, that Siegel was only in his late teens when he wrote it. I, I think you can see this playing out well as a short film or a comic book series. I'd actually like to see it adapted to another medium. I think it would adapt pretty well with just a... really without many changes at all, even if you moved it to modern day rather than the 1930s. Yeah, I think so too. I think, and I think it could even be done in a '30s setting. Oh, yeah, definitely, um, definitely. Yes, de- depression retro era stuff is is cool now. So, um, yeah, I would comics or an animated short film or or something would be would be a neat way to see this. It's probably never going to happen. Oh, we well. should do it. <laughs> we should make this happen. 
I have an iPad I can film it on. <laughs> you don't um, need what three actors, I guess. So yeah, basically, really you do, and then just a bunch of extras. Right. But you just have like you know three people that you like you know film over and over again. <laughs> and call me silly, but it did not even register. I did not even think about the fact until after you and I started planning this that the reign of the Superman and reign of the Superman <laughs> that uh, that one that the later name was was directly a play off of the earlier uh-huh. and um, so I felt very silly because I've known about both stories for years and I, I just never thought about it never put the two together until a handful of months ago. If if you're interested in reading this, it has actually been reprinted. It was reprinted in the second issue of Nemo, the Classic Comics Library, which was a magazine put out by Fantagraphics in the 1980s. It was in the second issue of that. Um, I checked on eBay a day or two ago, and there weren't any listed on there, but they do pop up from time to time, so you can track that down if you're interested. Um, I don't know of any places, of any other places where the whole story has been been reprinted. But it is available online, including the Internet Archive, and I will link to that in the show notes if anyone actually wants to sit down and read it. In 1992, the greatest hero the world has ever known died defending his city from a force of nature. That force of nature had a name. Doomsday. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast is a weekly internet radio program presented by the Superman homepage in association with the Superman Podcast Network. Every week, hosts Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor examine the comic book adventures of Superman from Man of Steel number one in 1986 to Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. Now they begin their coverage of the epic Death and Return of Superman trilogy with the first chapter of that story, Doomsday. From the first round to the ultimate sacrifice, Mike and Jeff will go through Doomsday in detail with the occasional special guest and a few surprises as well. Doomsday comes to From Crisis to Crisis beginning December 2011 at both www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com and www.supermanhomepage.com. In addition to The Reign of the Superman, the uh, third issue of that fanzine also has a few other stories, including The Dream Dimension, Part 3, by – it's credited to Eugene I. Frank, which is no doubt a Jerry Siegel alias. And there's a column called Science Fiction News that's attributed to I-4-C. Get it? I-4-C. <laughs> that uh, it prints a letter from Harry Bates, who was an editor of another fanzine called Astounding Stories. Apparently, Siegel had sent him a copy of the previous issue, and he was thanking him for it. But he also mentions that Astounding Stories is ending, which is why it's under the the news column. In 1940, Bates wrote a short story called Farewell to the Master, which was used as the basis for The Day the Earth Stood Still. And uh, Farewell to the Master was also adapted in uh, Marvel Comics World's Unknown number 3 in 1973. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And there's a one-page Curiosities feature by Joe Schuster, which is similar to those one-page uh, fact features that were in a lot of Golden Age comics with the big, big illustrations and just a little bit of text. Mm-hmm. And lastly, there was a letters column called Editor's Televisor which includes letters from Daniel McPhail of Oklahoma City 
and future Superman editor Julie Schwartz. Julie Schwartz was, of course, well-known among the science fiction fans of the day. In January 1932, along with Alan Glasser, Forrest Ackerman, and Mort Weisinger, which is another name that's going to be familiar to Superman fans, they started a fanzine of their own called Time Traveler, or The Time Traveler, I believe, which is often said to be the first fanzine devoted exclusively to science fiction stories. And Dan McPhail was also a fanzine author, and his was called Science Fiction News, and started, I believe, sometime in 1931. It's kind of interesting, given the limited reading that I've done on it, the way all these fanzines popped up in the early 30s, and it... (laughs) Not to be, uh, and not to play it up more than it is, but it's 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 kind of similar to how all the comic book podcasts that have popped up in in recent years, because you know you have one person, and then they inspire somebody else, and then they might inspire a couple of other people to start a podcast, and then they split off and do their own, and it it's just interesting how fandom has evolved so much over the last eighty years, but it's still very much the same, just with different technology. But the the contents page also calls for another story called Vandals from Pluto by Bernard J. Kenton, which was another Siegel alias. But this story actually isn't in the magazine. I looked into it some, and one site I found suggested the contents page was probably prepared before the rest of the magazine, and thus the story uh, was never in it. But that's it for The Reign of the Superman. It's it's really too bad that the second use of their of, of the character using the name Superman doesn't exist because I'd really like to go through that one too, even though Siegel said it was, like I said, uh, closer to Slam Bradley than Superman or even this. I'm sure it'd be fun to read that. I mean, it's a super-powered detective story. Um, I mean, at the same time, it might not be because there there are some things that Jerry Siegel has done that I have read and I have wondered how it could possibly be the same guy who did Superman and the Spectre and such. Well, yeah. But, um, Star Spangled Kid, not recommended. <laughs> but it could it could have been good. It could have been good. We'll never know. I haven't read many of the Star Spangled Kid stories, but it could be by that point that he was just overextended writing Superman and, and the Spectre. And was he still in the Spectre at that point? I'm actually questioning myself I want, on that at this. Point. I want to say yes because this. I think he wrote just about every Spectre story. Okay. In the golden age, up until, you know, when it ended, um, and yeah, it was either Siegel or Bernard Bailey stayed on the Spectre all the way up to More Fun Comics one hundred one. Um, one of those two did. The other one left after a short while. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman of the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast covering the adventures of Superman from 1970 to 1986. Join host Charlie Niemeyer at superbronze1970.libson.com. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane. The next week, I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970, when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com, 
and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Well, John, I, I, I really thank you for coming on the show. It's been fun to have the two Golden Age Superman podcasters teaming up. Why don't you uh, tell the folks where they can find your podcast and, and anything else you've got going online? Well, um, the Golden Age Superman podcast is simply entitled Golden Age Superman. And uh, it comes out right now. It's been going about monthly with, with school and everything else I have going on, uh, although I do get them out more frequently when I can. That is at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com and supermanhomepage.com and supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Or if you're um, one of the people that Apple has swallowed their souls, uh, you can always go to iTunes and find uh, Golden Age Superman in the podcast listing there. Um, Also, I'm um, starting up in January, Superman in the New 52 which is going to be monthly. It does not have a URL as of this recording because we've just started developing it. But since this is going to be released mid-December, you said? Yes. It'll be out okay. a week before Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, since this since it's only a couple weeks away, I thought I'd go ahead and throw it out there. Uh, if I can get it, it's going to be at new52superman.libson.com. But it's possible that'll be a different location. Um, I'll link to it on the blog. On the, okay. on the site for this show whenever you start that up. So, yeah, that'll be looking at all of the Superman adventures and other super folks uh, once a month, each month in the new 52. And, yeah, those are my two Superman projects. I can occasionally be heard on From Crisis to Crisis, the Superman podcast, because Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor are gracious to have me on there um, relatively frequently. And, and yeah. Weren't you doing reviews for Simply Superman Batman? Yes, every third month I do simply uh, super, uh, <laughs> every third issue of Action Comics I am doing the reviews for that book at simplysupermanbatman.wordpress.com um, I was writing an article series that I have stopped writing and it's kind of the inspiration for the podcast or the New 52 and everything but um, but yeah, Action Comics reviews I did the one for number three I'll be doing the one for number six and I also do the reviews for Batman and Robin on that site as well as for this show, everything you need to know can be found at greatcrypton.com. There you'll find show notes for this and all episodes. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so via iTunes or the RSS feed, and links to both of those can be found at the site. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter to get updates whenever I have new episodes or have show-related news to share. And you can contact me through either site if you have feedback, or if email is more your thing, you can contact me that way by sending email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com don't forget to stop by the superman homepage as well as the superman podcast network items are posted at both sites whenever i have new episodes out and both have all kinds of other superman related content for your eyes and ears notes about new episodes of john's show as he said are also posted at both sites so they kind of serve as a one-stop shop for superman indeed And finally, don't forget to check out my other podcast, Green Lantern's Light, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor and J. David Weider. We should have a new episode out in about a week, just before Christmas, I think. So you can get caught up for episode three. And as always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. John, I want to thank you again for coming on, and I want to thank all those who have supported the show over the last 50 episodes. And here's to 50 more. So... Thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
the question, though. The Superman reads his thoughts and gives the answer before leaving the library. That was a very good synopsis. I don't think my, my half's going to be quite that exciting. <laughs> the story then continues as Dunn, with his psychic, psychic abilities confirmed, sets out to get money. And-